It's time for us to have our weekly look at Oz politics and in Laura's uh, continued absence, this week's uh, body double is Amy Ramikas, a political reporter for Guardian Australia whose work I greatly admire. Uh, Amy, four weeks left. The Yes campaign says they've... Uh, well, they're facing an uphill battle, yet we saw thousands join Yes Marches at the weekend. We did, Philip. Good evening. And I was going to say waste and awful. That pretty much describes my job covering politics. So it was a lovely introduction <laughs> there. <laughs> I think even the Yes campaign was surprised by the support for the marches. And that is something that we have been hearing from the Yes camp, that there is an undercurrent of strong support now that people are starting to switch on to the referendum as a whole. That does not mean that there is not a huge uphill battle for the Yes campaign. It is still polling uh, un at under 50%, which with not making any of the Yes campaigners more comfortable. But there was a very cohesive movement across the country this weekend at the same time as we started to see a, a bit more frizzes and cracks in the no camp, uh, probably for the first time this campaign. Look, I'm a great admirer of marches, but uh, I'm old enough to remember when half the world marched against uh, a, a hypothetical war in, uh, in the Middle East, which, of course, tragically came to pass. Nonetheless, around 30,000 joined the Melbourne march. Yeah, yeah, they think they had about 200,000 across the country. So while there did seem to be a bit more coverage of some of the no campaign uh, during the during the yes campaign marches, and uh, we saw some media outlets decide to focus on the small pockets of no within those marches, there was a huge amount of support and the Yes campaign is feeling quite positive about it all and thinking that this is going to be the start of, of their actual campaign, hoping they get across the line in four weeks' time. Amy, where is the No campaign focusing its, uh, well, its considerable resources? Everybody is focusing their considerable resources in Tasmania. Mania and South Australia. So it's basically New South Wales and Victoria, they're hoping that, well, yes, is hoping that they can get across the line. So then we need two other states and South Australia and Tasmania have emerged as the most likely to vote yes or no. So it kind of hinges there at the moment. But I heard one campaigner saying that the, the yes campaign... Hello, Amy. Sorry, my cheekbone is just hitting mute. Can you hear me now? Yes, that's fine. Press yes. on. <laughs> I was going to say that the I heard a campaigner say the other day that the yes campaign has to convince 9 million Australians to say yes, whereas the no campaign only needs to convince 3 million Australians to say no. So and they that, think they the might system. find them on social media, don't they? They do. I mean, social media is where a lot of the campaign has, uh, yes and no, have focused their energies. And that's because uh, social media tends to be where people get their news these days. They don't listen to people like me. They look at Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. So that is where both campaigns are deploying their messages. Amy, would you tell me about the pylon on Marcia Langton, please? 
Oh, now that was just, I think, a very depressing episode. Uh, just not just for this campaign, but but just in general. Uh, Professor Marcia Langton has been at her own expense flying across the country holding uh, campaign forums where she's answering the questions of voters. And she was in Bunbury in WA a couple of weeks ago where she was asked by a voter who was leaning towards no, um, some erroneous information that she had heard about the campaign. And Marcia, in taking apart the message that this woman had heard in explaining why it was wrong, then spoke about some of the tactics that the no camp have been using. And she said, when you pull it apart, uh, you know, at the core of it is racism or she is stupidity. She did not say that no voters were racist or stupid. She just said that some of the arguments the no camp were using. And I think any rational and reasonable person can see the truth in that. What happened then was the Bunbury Herald, they wrote it up. It was a, a, an accurate telling of uh, the professor's visit to Bunbury. But then during question time, just before question time, the Australian newspaper ran a article with the erroneous headline saying that Marcia Langdon calls no voters racist and stupid. And then Peter Dutton picked that up in question time and off it went. Now, the professor said nothing of the sort. She did not say that. She made a very valid point. But then we saw a lot of people digging up other forums and other talks that the professor had given where she had spoken, again, quite rightly and quite correctly about racism existing in this country and that some people will be voting no because of racist reasons. And again, that is a fact. It is a scientific fact. It is backed up by the evidence. It is backed up by the academia studies about racism in Australia. And I don't think that anybody can ever, ever, ever say that an Indigenous woman does not know when she is experiencing racism. And that was the story that she was telling. But that was that was picked up and it was it somehow became worse to be the person saying that racism exists in this country and calling out the racism than it is to actually be racist. And it was just a depressing episode. A very different line was taken by uh, Senator Price at the uh, National Press Club. Yes, uh, Senator Jacinta Price said that uh, basically we're well, I'm putting words in her mouth here, but it, she was talking about basically how we're living in some sort of post-racial nirvana uh, where she was asked uh, by Josh Butler, my colleague, whether she believed that there were ongoing negative act, um, impacts of colonisation in Australia, and she said no. She did not believe that there were ongoing negative impacts of colonisation, uh, and she used the example of uh, running water and education to to back that up. And she has since clarified those comments and said that if you'd sp spoken to any successful Indigenous person about whether they would prefer to be where they are now as opposed to pre-colonisation, that most of them would say that they prefer to be where they are now. But again, when you Look at the facts of it all. There are people from the stolen generation who are still alive in Australia. This is not ancient history. We still see the impacts on Indigenous people in no matter what measure of closing the gap that you want to choose. We still see the impacts of 
government policy on Indigenous people and we're still making policy largely for Indigenous people and the Indu card is a perfect example of that or, or dry communities. So to say that there are no ongoing negative effects of colonisation I don't think is, is bore true by the evidence on any measure. Now, speaking of the No campaign, there seems to be some division amongst its leaders on the question of a potential treaty process after the referendum. Yes, so Warren Mundine opened up this can of worms on Insiders on Sunday. Now, it has to be said he is one of the front runners for the New South Wales Senate position that has opened up with Maurice Payne's departure from the Senate. So Mr Mundine is not only, you know, the face of the no campaign and running that, he's also got an encounter flank where he's trying to get enough support from the New South Wales uh, branch to win pre-selections. So that's a battle on two fronts for Mr Mundine at the moment. But he said that a no vote would mean that the treaty process would start in earnest, that all of the hard work would be in if the vote was no come October 15. And that has opened up an entire can of worms because we've had a lot of people in the no camp essentially saying that if you vote no, the status quo will continue. And that if you vote yes, you're going to get treaty and you're going to get all of these very, you know, scary inverted commas, things that happen. Whereas Mr Mundine has now just turned that all on his head by saying, well, actually, if you vote no, that's when the work starts. That's when treaty, you know, and he was said not just one treaty, treaties, you know, with different uh, different elements and different parts because that's the culture. Like uh, Mark Latham, Mundine is uh, politically peripatetic and he also supports changing the day, the date of Australia Day, a view not shared by many of his fellow no campaigners. No, well, of course, that's been one of the scare tactics used by the No campaign, that if you vote yes, well, Australia Day might be changed. I mean, putting aside the fact that I believe that it should, and I think the good portion of this country agree with the fact that it should, uh, the voice is not going to have any sort of impact on, you know, what date Australia Day is or isn't, because it is, of course, just an advisory body and they can give advice on policy that impacts Indigenous people, but the government does not have to take that advice, which is one of the issues that uh, the Black Sovereign movement has with the with the voice proposal because they don't think it actually has any power. So, I mean, the No campaign is starting to show a little bit of cracks in its message. I think, I think that's been coming out the last couple of days. To other matters, the uh, government has again dismissed the opposition's proposal to replace our... Um, our lovely old coal-fired power stations with nuclear plants. How do you react to that? <laughs> I think I react uh, like most rational thinking Australians. We're going, of course, because A, where do we get the money for nuclear power? B, where are we putting the waste? Uh, C, how much time do we do we have to actually build this nuclear power? D, when the coalition was in government, they investigated nuclear power and quietly shelved that report because their own report came back with the fact that it was too expensive and wouldn't actually reap the dividends in terms of cheaper energy that they were after. I mean, the list 
goes on and on and on. And when Mr. Dutton was using the examples of Canada or Ontario or whatever it was he was using, he neglected to mention that, you know, that is offset by quite a bit of hydrogen. But if you look at France, which has a pretty big proportion of nuclear power, they actually have high power prices. I mean, we're not going to see power prices come down anytime soon. That is true. But it's also because we've had 10 years of no energy policy where we haven't actually made any decisions. And so we're quite behind on our transition. So we're just going to have to do that hard yards of doing the transition with the renewables, which is already in the works, which is cheap, which is reliable. And every day we're getting better technology when it comes to batteries and storage and all the rest of it. And we are going to see cheaper power in this country. But what we need to do is stop all the maybe we should try nuclear talk because it's just ridiculous. We'll be delving into the debate around nuclear waste, nuclear power and nuclear waste in particular very shortly on the program. Amy, finally, Qantas is the gift that keeps on giving politically? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it depends what side of the chamber you sit on, I think. Uh, but no, the Qantas issue, I mean, it's not one that is going to bring down the government, but I think what Nikki Sava wrote in the SMH the other day was is very telling that if, if the government handles a real crisis the way that it's handled Qantas and Qatar and all the rest of it, then it is going to be in a lot of trouble because this is mostly being a mess of their own making and that mess is that they haven't been able to adequately explain uh, why they took the decision that they did. I mean, it it could be a very sensible decision, but just tell people why you did it. After the program, I'll be heading home to uh, to watch tonight's Four Cs. I understand Four Corners is uh, well, it's conducting a coronial inquiry into the corpse of Qantas, which I cannot wait to see. So, okay. Meanwhile, the ACT, uh, some new law decriminalising the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs will soon come into effect, but uh, Dutton and others want to reverse these laws. Yeah, it's not the first time that the Commonwealth has waded into territory rights and it's a pretty big deal in the in the ACT. I mean, we saw it with euthanasia um, and then we saw whispers of it when the ACT decriminalised marijuana uh, and cannabis and Peter Dutton, who I think was Home Affairs Minister at the time, was making noises about whether or not he could reverse that decision. But now that the ACT is moving to decriminalise, uh, you know, just as you said, small quantities of illicit drugs. So you get a fine, but you don't necessarily get a, a charge or go to prison or something like that. And federal laws still apply. So you can't be driving while having drugs. You can't sell it. You can't grow it. You know, there's a whole bunch of rules around what decriminalisation actually means. But the federal opposition are very cranky about all of it and are trying to move a bill in the Senate to overturn the ACT's right to create its own laws. Senator David Pocock, the ACT independent senator, is very agitated about this and is starting a campaign to push back. And uh, it'll be interesting to see just how many people come on board to support the federal opposition in this push. Good on you, Amy. Amy Ramikas, political reporter with The Guardian. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.